Hey, uh, good morning. Welcome to the Brook. Honored that we can connect together in this way. And for this moment, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the book of Ephesians towards the middle end of our Bibles. We're going to be in chapter six. Uh, it's not where we're going to begin, but it is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. So you can go ahead and meet me there. Or you can use uh, the Bible app, which also has all the notes so that you can follow along. And the words will be on the screen so that we can track through the text together. It matters. Uh, bringing God's design to bear on the various relationships that we find ourselves having and the various relationship spaces we find ourselves in all for the purpose of pursuing greater health and wholeness. Like that's been the aim, the pursuit, the intentional, thoughtful pursuit of greater relational health and wholeness. Now that has taken us uh, through a whole lot of topics um, and to a whole lot of relational spaces. And we are closing our series today by looking at the idea of parenting and the space of family dynamics, I must admit, I'm a bit eager for God's word uh, to us to come to bear on us in this moment, specifically in ways that come just settle and stir the hearts of our parents and parents in our community, and not just the hearts of our parents, but even those who desire to be parents, saying God will just settle and stir our hearts towards greater freedom and greater faithfulness in the beautiful, messy, but necessary work of raising up children, parenting. Now, make no mistake, I'm under no illusions. I know that there's weight on your shoulders, there's weight on mine, and I may not know the particulars of your parenting situation. And I don't have a desire to silver bullet you, like with this message for the particulars of your parenting situation. That ain't it. That ain't me. However, I do have a desire for God's design, God through the scriptures, to be brought to bear on our particular parenting situations, to be brought to bear on this sacred space parenting. And I use sacred very intentionally because the idea or the concept of parenting, it didn't begin with us and it isn't primarily defined by us. It begins and is defined by God. And so out of all of the ways God could have chosen to disclose or define himself, he chose that of Father, that he is eternally Father. What that means is that core to who God is is fatherhood. Furthermore, that means that fatherhood or parenting it is not the construct of human imagination or cultural ideation. It doesn't begin with us and it isn't defined by us. It is birthed in the very heart of God. It's sacred, which also means that we don't have to figure this thing out by ourselves. Rather, we can turn to God for strength, for wisdom, for comfort, for help. It's sacred. It, it's so... We know it's sacred because we are parents, not by accident or even choice. Like earnest desire doesn't put us into this space of parenting. Like there's so many heart-wrenching stories here in our, in, our, in our body and all across the globe of 
people with earnest desire, but have battled and are currently battling infertility. That proves that truth 10 times over that this isn't something that we primarily even choose. It's something that God in his wisdom and in his kindness and at his timing allows us to enter into. And some of us are like, well, I adopted. I'm, I'm fostering. So in a sense, I, I did choose this. It's like, well, in a sense, yeah. But if we're honest, we know that there are plenty of willing and even worthy candidates that are not able to receive children in the foster care or in the adoption system for one reason or another. Often the reason is because of financial situations, which if we're honest, if you just that actually plays into some of the challenges and the problems within our current adoption and foster care system where it actually sometimes feels like this racketeering ring where children are auctioned off to the highest bidder or the most connected. Both of those truths tell the story that it's not because of altruistic choice that we end up with children. If we find ourselves having children in our care, it's because God in his wisdom and his kindness has willed it to be. And because he's willed it to be, there's something that he's after. God gives parents the gift of children so that they can grow them into who he's called them and desires them to be. That's why kids are in your life right now. God has given you that gift, given me that gift, the gift of children, so that we can grow them into who he has called and who he desires them to be. You don't have kids for the second coming of you. You do not have kids so that you can have a second chance at all the dreams that were deferred so that we can join them in growing them to be who God has called and desires them to be. It is a noble task that we should wear with pride. And some of us do. Some of us have a beautiful sense of pride when it comes to parenting. And some of us, we, we do have that beautiful sense of pride, but we also have this abiding sense of frustration and fear because we know the weights that we shoulder. And we even have this sense of like, man, like, have I already like wounded my children in ways that they'll never recover from? Like, it's how it is now, this full season where it feels like I am outmanned and outgunned and I'm just trying to survive. Is this how it's always going to be? Will I ever get it right? And so there's not just this abiding sense of pride, the good, the good kind but this abiding sense of fear and frustration and anxiety and weight. And I just want to say, God sees you. <laughs> God sees you. You are seen. And with the words today, would they, would they soothe you? Would they stir you? Would, they, would it be like a, a lifting of this impossible weight that you aren't meant to carry? Would that be lifted off of your shoulders? But would there also simultaneously be like this, this laying, of this necessary, beautiful, and even messy work and how we're supposed to do it well. And to that end, Hebrews 12 and Ephesians 6. Both of these passages contain truth that could free our souls, that we should feed our souls for freedom. And there's some commitments that we should take to heart 
and apply to our lives. In fact, Hebrews 12 is where we're going to primarily get the truth, some ideas, key ideas that we should feed our soul for the purpose of greater freedom. And then we're going to turn to Ephesians 6, where we're going to get these commitments that we should take to heart and then apply to our lives so that we can carry out the work of parenting more excellently and faithfully. So let's get to work. Hebrews 12, read with me, and then we'll take it bit by bit. It's only um, one verse. It reads like this. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Man, so the entire book of Hebrews is filled with sobering realism, interacting with redemptive beauty. I mean, the entire book is begging and pleading with the people of God, don't lose heart. And that is felt all the more with this chapter, with chapter 12, where we just get studying wonderful imperatives and truths and calls to action. Let us cast off every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured like hostility, but he, he kept pressing on, enduring the cross, despising its shame, like strengthen your weak knees, like lift, and he says, listen, you're inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 28, don't lose heart. It is sobering realism, interacting with redemptive beauty to encourage the people of God. Now, in the middle of this conversation of endurance, we get this conversation regarding this idea of discipline. And it's a conversation that happens by comparison and contrast where you get earthly fathers compared with a heavenly father. So that's the back half of verse 10. But God, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness, that the scriptures are consistently trying to paint God as a father. That's how he wants to be related to. That's how he's chosen to reveal himself as tender, as loving, as caring, as moving thoughtfully and regularly for the good of his children. Comes out here. Every single act of God towards his children is good. Like if you believe the good news of Jesus, you've seen Jesus for who he is, you have encountered Jesus, you have said, God, I will put my faith in you. I will take your words to me as true. And now he looks at you and he says, you are my son, daughter, hear me. Every single act of God towards you is for your good. It is this glorious picture of a good father. It's good news that God is unmatched in his power, but he's also unmatched in his kindness. This is the gospel, good news of Jesus Christ. And it is painted on the backdrop of earthly fathers, earthly parents, and the frailty thereof. Notice the contrast. But, this is the beginning of the verse, but our fathers, I'll, I'll read it, they disciplined us for a short time 
as seemed best to them. Now that may feel like a throwaway verse, but just as an aside, the scriptures are filled with thousands of these that really are an ocean of treasure if we just sit and soak in them because they move the story further and they also cause us to just pause and reflect and contemplate and engage in a relationship with the God who wrote the Bible, right? But this verse, it just reeks of the liminality and the deficiency of earthly parenting. Now, if you're a parent, you know that to be true. It feels like truer words haven't been said. Disciplined for a short time as seemed best. But that ain't so, just because it's true, like, yeah, I feel that. That's not necessarily something that we have to wear with pride. That's something that we wear humbly. And the reason being because this is a contrast. It is showing our frailty. And we know that. Let me count the ways. Let me just lift, list off the ways that we are frail in our parenting, where we have failed our children. The ways I've done it, the ways I see other people do it, the ways that people with more gray hair have told me that they've done it. Let me list the ways for us. First, parenting based on our image and not their good. So, um, three kids, right? And uh, there's about 18 months between each of them. So my oldest, Serenity, is 10. Joel just turned nine a few weeks ago. And my youngest, Noah, is seven. Now, in addition to that reality, <laughs> uh, four months into marriage, we found out that we were uh, pregnant with Serenity. And so it felt like the first four to six years, man, of life and marriage and parenting was just survive somehow. And I ran into early what I call grocery store moments. You've probably had these where you're in a, that still happen, even though they're older, still happen. But you're in a grocery store and it's like, don't lick that, don't touch that. No, we're not gonna buy that. I already told you that. Why am I repeating myself seven times? Why are you pinching your sister? Why are you yelling at your brother? Why? Why are we doing this in the 10 items or less line? This is supposed to be the quick run, right? And so that would happen. And immediately I would just feel the eyes of all the customers on me. And what I noticed is I would respond based on people's perception of me. Now I want them to know that I'm actually a good parent. This is an anomaly, even though it's really not, <laughs> you know? And my, my children are well-behaved. And so what, what would happen Honestly, there'd be times where I would just even overcorrect, not for their good, but for my image, right? Like irritability and impatience that causes us to miss out on sweet moments. Have you had that? I've had that. Where it feels like I'm in a rush or just having an off day and I'm not able to enjoy the beauty of the moment. Overreacting for fill in the blank. Pride, shame, fear, etc. There's more. <laughs> There's more. Not using the opportunities I have to pour into my kids because I'm preoccupied or tired. So early on, bedtime used to be Bible stories and prayers, just like, oh, so how can we pray together? I don't know what happened, but some happened where it was go to bed now. Some happened it was don't pass go, don't collect $200, just go to bed. 
And then it was like, man, I, it's, it's Netflix and chill. This is Friday. Turn on Alexa, chill hop essentials, and go to sleep. Not using opportunities to pour into them because I'm tired or preoccupied. There's just more to human frailty and parenting that I've done as well. Unknowingly and even knowingly undermining and undercutting our spouses. So um, by and large, my wife gets more quantity time with our kids uh, because she works at the school that they attend which, by the way, is an opportunity to pray for her. This is the last day of our February fast. Lift her up now, please pray for her. And so what happens is it's easier for me to come in with quality time and appear as the fun guy, the fun parent. And the example, dad, mom says that we're supposed to help with dishes. Yeah, but you know, you're not really doing a good job of that. And I don't really want salmonella. So how about you stop um, and you go to bed or you can just go watch TV before you go to bed. Yeah, that's, that is awesome. But that's undermining and undercutting my spouse. The list goes on and on and on for me. And maybe you found yourself in that space or maybe your list looks something like this. Comparing your children to their siblings or other children. Abuse, verbally, emotionally, physically abusive. Or maybe on your list is you have made your children everything. And when they were not able to fulfill that end of the bargain, you crushed them. Or maybe you are looking at your children at this, as a second coming of you. And what you're doing, maybe unintentionally, is you are sacrificing their life for your deferred dreams. Or maybe you have unrealistic expectations for their stage of life. You want them to have the self-control of an adult, which by the way, a lot of adults don't have self-control, but you want them to have the self-control of an adult when they're only a preteen. List after list after list, all of it reflecting human frailty. Listen, a family, human frailty, the frailty of earthly parents, fathers and mothers, it is the backdrop on which the strength and beauty of God as Father is painted. Like, it is sobering realism that reminds us that we cannot escape, nor do we have to erase the shortcomings of our earthly parents. We can't escape, nor do we have to erase the shortcomings we have as parents. We can't escape and we don't have to erase the shortcomings of parenthood because God understands and God gives grace. He gives himself as father, the example that we look to as well as experience. And he steps in even when we drop balls. Grace. Now, that's true. There's three ideas that we can just feed to our souls for further freedom. 
Let me give it to you. First dish. My parenting on its best day is an imperfect reflection of a perfect father in heaven. My parenting on its best day is an imperfect reflection of a perfect father in heaven. That's the first one. Second one is this. My parenting on its worst day is an opportunity to remember a perfect father in heaven. That's the second. My parenting on its worst day is an opportunity to remember a perfect father in heaven. And the third one is this. We don't have to, nor can we carry perfect parenting. We can't do that. We can't carry the perfection of parenting. Only God can. We don't have to do it. What we do have to carry is this beautiful, messy, and necessary work in ways that reflect who God is and ways that lead towards life for our children. Now, this is where Ephesians comes into play because Ephesians just gives us some pretty straightforward and significant calls to action that will provide commitments we can take. Let me um, read it for us and then give us the actions that are found in verse uh, 4. Read me. Ephesians 6, starting verse 1, it says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So verse four really just gives, I mean, it is, that's where you get the like, straightforward and significant call to actions, but the weight of those actions are really built out by the preceding verses, verses one, two, three, and the surrounding culture that Paul's audience found themselves in and how some of those dynamics crept into the family space. Let's look at the preceding verses. So, so he's laid out this paradigm of obedience for children. He says, children, obey, honor your mother and your father that your days may be longer. Now, get this. Paul isn't merely after dutiful obedience. He is telling, he says, children, obey. Like, obey what God has said. Obey who God is. Trust him in this, not just because he says so, but because there's blessing attached to it. He is inviting children to receive the blessing of God in their life for a greater experience of life. And so if we allow these preceding verses to sit on us and to sit on verse four, it is pulling us into this desire and even this aroma of greater experiences of life, that children would have life further for them. Now, if we look at the surrounding like the culture that their audience was in, there is this idea that was prevalent among them called patria potestas. Now this is a Latin phrase that we translate into English as the power of the father. Now this idea was rooted in the Roman Empire and showed up 
and all of the cultures that the Roman Empire touched. And what it essentially meant was that fathers had unlimited power, virtually unlimited power over their household, that they had unlimited power over their property, they had unlimited power, decision-making power, and everything over their wives, they had unlimited power over their children, they had unlimited power over their future. And it wasn't just in the household, it spilled over to legal matters as well. In theory, this idea of patria, uh, patria potestas, it meant that fathers had the power of life and death over their entire family. Now again, this spilled over into cultures that the Roman Empire touched. So there's examples after examples in Hellenistic Judaism and even some Hellenistic Christianity where fathers were harsh and they responded harshly and severely to the disobedience of their children. But it wasn't just harsh actions, it was harsh and severe attitudes. Now think about that. Think about the environment that that creates if that portrayal potestas is really what's shaping your perspective of family dynamics and parenting. It creates a true sense of fragility amongst children. Man, we don't want to make dad mad today because we don't know what could happen. But it's not just this sense of fragility, it also creates this heightened potential for inward harboring of anger and anxiety, resentment. That's what happens when you don't feel thought through, when you don't feel cared for, when you don't feel valued, when you don't feel like you have a voice. It increases the, up, the, like, the likelihood of, of harboring like anger and anxiety in your heart. Don't miss the anxiety it's implicit in this text. Well, Paul is going to say this in another message to another church, Colossians 3.21, and what he's going to bring out is the likely outcome of constant provocation. Children get discouraged. Now, so if you take the preceding verses, you take the surrounding like culture that he is speaking into, and what we walk away with is that Paul is earnestly pleading with parents, fathers particularly, don't act in ways that embitter your children, add anxiety to their life, or hinder the blessing of God in their lives because you're causing them to stumble. This is the plea. Don't, pro what do you mean? don't provoke your children. That is the plea. Don't act in the ways that are going to embitter them. Don't act in the ways that are going to add greater anxiety to them. Don't respond in the ways or act in the ways that are going to hinder the blessing of God in their life. Now, we got to feel the weight of this. We got to. Because when he, when he uses anger earlier in Ephesians, he talks about anger in the heart as providing a foothold for the devil. Satan salivates at angry, resentful, anxious children. There's a level of excitement that happens in his heart to just say, oh, I'm gonna get him, I got him. Especially angry and embittered, anxious children 
who have anger and resentment because of what's taking place in Christian households. That's some of your story. That's some of your story. Where your household was one. Growing up, it was a Christian household, but it was one where it was my way or the highway. Universal power. It wasn't any type of conversations, just really extended monologues. And what happened was the first chance that you got at Christian freedom, you put Christianity at, on the shelf. Like, I'm free. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm good. Even now, things that were orthodox to you, that you grew up believing truth that's rooted in the scripture, you're like, yeah, but it's not consistent with the experience I had. So now it's on the shelf as well. He salivates at this. And so this is a plea. This is a plea, hear me. Act in ways that don't embitter or add anxiety or hinder the blessing of God in the lives of your children. Now, if we assume, if we assume that there are things that are occurring, disobedience within our children that would provoke a response in us, that would maybe cause us to overreact in ways that we didn't even expect. I want to give us a consideration that actually moves to the first commitment. The consideration is actually a question. When you sin, how does God see you? How does God see you? How do you answer that? Like that fundamentally affects so much else. Maybe you've been thought, you grew up with, the, the idea that God's eyes are so pure, he can't look on evil. So when you sin, like God is disgusted with you, he can't look at you, he has to turn away from you. So you grew up with that picture, which is actually a distortion of that passage. It's very hard to make that theology work in the Bible when the first time humanity sinned, God didn't run away from them, he sought them out. And then when you get to Noah, where, where God says the world is full of evil, that in the heart of humanity are evil thoughts continuously, sin always, what it says is that he was grieved, he was sad. Sin breaks the heart of God, but it doesn't alter the way he loves. It doesn't change his disposition of love towards us. And in truth, if we search the scriptures, what we often see is that Sin doesn't necessarily change the way God sees us as much as it changes the way we see him and we see ourselves. So we start to project ideas on God. He'll never forgive me. He'll never accept me. How things are or how they always will be. I can't change. And then we act in light of those ideas. Now, when your kids sin against you, I would encourage us to the best of our ability to empty our hearts of frustration and see how those narratives at work may be working in them. And they're beating themselves up. They're afraid to come to you. They're afraid to open up their hearts and say, this is what's going on, which allows us to have a new commitment to be a soft and a safe space to land. That assumes understanding grace, how God sees us, how God interacts with us, the gospel, that he looks at people with desirous affection 
wanting them to have a relationship with him even when they sit. And when our kids show us their humanity in ways that are disobedient, would we be a soft and a safe space to land? There's so much more here though. So Paul is not merely calling a parents, fathers in particular, to refrain from certain activity. He's calling them to persist in another type of activity. This is the back half of verse four. It reads like this. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. There's some attitudes here that, that give life to the actions that's called for. Now, we may not see it immediately, um, but if we were to look at the original language, it's undeniably there. So the verb that Paul um, says that we translate as bring up, Paul uses it elsewhere in Ephesians, specifically Ephesians 5.29, and it's translated as nourish. And so bring up here, it has a mechanical feel like, like, we're, like we're putting Legos together, when in reality it's more than that. There's this idea of nourishing where you are watering, where there's a level of tenderness, there's a level of thoughtfulness, there's a level of intentionality. Paul uses it earlier to talk about how husbands should love their wives and to parallel how Christ loves us, that he nourishes us. He moves tenderly and thoughtfully, intentionally towards our growth and our good. And so that is the attitude, the posture, one of nourishment, tenderness that drives the actions of discipline and instruction. Now, discipline and instruction go hand in hand. In fact, they're two sides of the same coin. Often when we hear discipline, we primarily think of correction. And I get that. In fact, that's how discipline here specifically is used. The emphasis is put on corrective actions. But discipline as an idea or a concept is way beyond just corrective action. In fact, the idea or concept of discipline that we get from the scriptures and we just get from practical life is discipline is formation. The work of discipline is a work of formation. Formation is to like produce something in someone, to grow someone in some way, and to move someone towards some aim. That's the work of formation, and that's the work of discipline. Now, the go-to tools for that are corrective action, but it's not just corrective action, it's timely and wise teaching, which is why here, instruction focuses on that second part. What are we teaching them? What do we want them to know? Is it gonna be producing life in them? Is it gonna move them away for their good? That is the work that he's calling us to, formation, to grow them, to produce stuff in them, to move them towards an aim that is worthy and good. Let me just pause and just love on some of us. Can we just like delete from our language ideas and statements like, well, my wife is more the disciplinarian in my house, or my husband is more the disciplinarian in my house, or I wish my wife was more the disciplinarian in my house, I wish my husband was more the disciplinarian in my house, I wish my co-parent was more the disciplinarian. Like, just just delete that because it's not helpful language and it undermines the cohesion that exists in parenting, regardless of your cultural upbringing, regardless of your personality or preference, we 
play a role in the formation of our children, period. And if we're honest, when we work together well, we actually give our kids the greatest gift possible, which is a healthy picture of marriage and love and community. It also means, practically, that if discipline isn't primarily correction, it's formation, then all of life is at our disposal for the discipline and formation of our kids. Those grocery store moments become more than opportunities to just bang out tasks. They become opportunities to train up our kids, to love on them, to look for opportunities to have meaningful conversations that will move them towards meaningful life. Okay. In light of all of that, we got to see that there's a parenthesis here that shows that this isn't arbitrary. Like Paul's aim isn't, yo, man, I want you to refrain from this and I want you to be more thoughtful about your discipline so that you can win period of the year. That is not his aim. His aim is a healthy family dynamic that is rooted in who God is. And so that's the beginning of chapter six in the Lord. That's the end of verse four. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. That means that the source, the standard, the strategy for forming our kids is God's design, making God's word central to the work. Ideas regarding who he is and what he says about us, making the people of God central to the work because it's the people of God, the church, that reveals and reflects the character of God in powerful ways where we enter into greater wholeness, understanding God and understanding who we are because we become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. It is not arbitrary activity. It is measuring our parenting and this work of discipline against God's word and his design, which exists to move us towards life. Now, there's three commitments that I think this text gives us. Let me give you the first one. And it really just flow out how God does this to us. First is this, model with integrity. Model with integrity. Listen, I know we've kind of moved past the do as I say, not as I do mantra, be the dominant narrative, but we cannot sleep on how easy it is for self-righteousness and hypocrisy to morph and adapt and just remain in our hearts. And so we gotta model with integrity. What we say and what we do needs to be consistent, but this is not morality. It is not, man, I'm just gonna model what it looks like to be a hard one. That is not what he's after. It's about modeling with integrity what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, which implies that we are living transparent lives, where we are showing them the difficulty of this thing. We are showing them how difficult it is to love God with the entirety of who we are and how difficult it is to love our neighbors with the sincerity and the energy that we would direct towards ourselves. We are quick to repent, to apologize when we are wrong. That's part of modeling with integrity, giving them an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus well, which means that we're moving 
from being some type of Messiah to them and being a mirror of who God is and who God wants to be for them. We model with integrity Jesus' words to us, follow me. And our words to our children should be the exact same. Follow me. Second commitment, provide meaningful presence. Provide meaningful presence. Now, meaningful presence implies emotional accessibility and emotional availability. It is not merely joining them in their hobbies. It ain't less than that, but it's not merely that. It's providing presence that moves them forward in life, and that entails emotional accessibility and emotional availability. Listen, we cannot say to ourselves, well, they know that I love them because I provide for them. That is not consistent with the scriptures. It is anti-Christian and it is anti-gospel to reduce love to just acts that are detached from the heart, that are detached from communicating, from being connected on a relational, emotional level. And some of you are like, well, I'm not that affectionate. Well, now you know how to pray. And I'm not saying that you need to become the new standard of sensitivity. What I am saying is we all need to progress in emotional maturity because emotionally immature parents emotionally damage their children. And man, the wounds of emotional trauma, they run deeper than we could ever imagine. So we provide meaningful presence. We're with our kids, like with them in every way of the world, emotionally in predominance. Last minute. Make much of God's story. Make much of God's story. And I don't mean like we want our kids to be Bible trivia experts. Rather, it is showing them how beautiful and necessary God's words are. Both in how we live and in how we parent specifically. It is connecting the key ideas so they will fall in love with God's words to them and to know him well. So that looks a particular way. It looks like going beyond me or the other pastors being the people who give your children the word of God. That's your role, mom. That's your role, dad. Now these commitments that we're asking that we take to heart and apply to our lives are also commitments that we as a church are making to you that, that we would come alongside in a way where we are a safe and soft space for you and your children to land. That we would come alongside you in a way where you, you feel this invitation to, to relationship where we are modeling with integrity what it looks like to journey with Jesus. That we would provide meaningful presence and we would make much of God's story. That's actually our commitment to you as well because parenting doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't happen best in isolation. Parenting thrives in the context of community. I'm closing with this idea. I'm pretty sure we know it, but I think it may be worth saying. 
how I parent my children reflects where I am with Jesus. How I parent my children reflects where I am with Jesus. Our kids are mirror to us, man. They, they show us some of the things we're most uncomfortable with, that we're afraid to acknowledge. And that's sobering. But it could also strengthen us because that means if we really are after growth and freedom and walking faithfully in this area, we don't need to discover the manual for parenting that's going to assist us in every single situation imaginable. Your greatest investment into your children is not financial security, it's spiritual maturity. Because if we are receiving who God is well, then we'll be living out of that and we'll be parenting out of the overflow of receiving God as Father. So the investment that you can make right now that will have the greatest return in the life of children is investing in your spiritual maturity. Moving beyond cursory engagement with the Word of God. Moving beyond cursory engagement with the people of God, but courageously moving towards the heart of God through His Word with His people. To that end, I'm going to pray that God would give us the courage and free us. He shows you to feel a little bit lighter. Amen. If you're feeling a little bit more energized to do this work, praise God, but that he would root all of that in him and his strength. Now, let's pray. God, you give us this tremendous gift. Pray that we would find joy in it. I know sometimes your blessings can feel like burdens because we feel ill-equipped, we're frustrated. But God, would those who have this gift enjoy it well? And would they steward it well? Would they seek after the good of their children beyond and above their own personal comfort as parents? Even and especially if that means harder conversations and even courageous decisions. The start of which I pray, God, invest in their spiritual maturity, to not take it for granted, to not see it as secondary, but to see it as primary to the work of parenting well. This we ask in 